the United States Secret Service tells us that there is somewhere between 70 and 200 million dollars worth of phony money floating around out there. Isn't that reassuring? So the change you get that the Turkey Hill this afternoon might be phony money. And they, they say that because of the sophistication of the digital equipment that counterfeiters are using now, it's harder and harder to tell the real thing from the pretend thing. And many times you go into a retail establishment and they have a little um, brown pen, you know, they, they take a swipe, especially if you give them a 50 or a 100, they, they put a little mark on there and hold it up. Even those things are not uh, guaranteed to reveal whether it's fake or um, or the real thing. And uh, uh, if, if, but if you're a good at it, you, you can see the red and the blue threads that are woven in the bills, and now they have watermarks on them and, and uh, raised printing, things like that, to help um, separate the real thing from the phony thing. Uh, <clears throat> I always get a, a kick out of reading stories about criminals that don't exercise good ju judgment. Um, just a couple weeks ago in Fairfield, Connecticut, um, a couple went to a Victoria's Secret store and passed off counterfeit money. And I, how you can spend $780 on under, underwear is beyond me. But that's what they spent that day and paid it all with counterfeit money. Now, if you know how counterfeiters work, you have, you have one of two options. You're going to pay for... Uh, merchandise with this counterfeit money and you get the merchandise or you somehow want to convert that money to real money and so they were looking to do that they they bought the purchases went back the same day and tried to return them and um victoria's secret said yeah we can do that and they gave them their money back but guess what money they gave them back had a pile of cash here and and part of the money they gave back to them was the counterfeit money. And here's what the couple did. They started complaining that they were receiving counterfeit money. Well, of course, that raised everybody's suspicions. They called the police. Next thing you know, they were arrested. Now, by the way, if you're getting out of high school or college, I don't rec recommend counterfeiting to be a, you know, a career you want to pursue. Uh, if you're caught... Um, the penalty for that is up to a $250,000 fine and up to 20 years in prison. Now, if you go to prison as a counterfeiter and you behave yourself, you, maybe you'll get out in 7, 12 years, something like that. This morning I want to talk about something that's counterfeit for which the consequences are far more serious. We're going to talk about um, Jesus gave a parable how to tell the difference between real and pretend faith. Authentic faith, counterfeit faith. Now, this, uh, if you've been around Keystone any length of time, you, you've heard these kinds of sermons come up again and again. And I assure you, I don't plan it that way. But there's enough material in the Word of God that warns us that this is a possibility, that we shouldn't just kind of blow by it. And this morning, um, uh, as I pray, we're going to read the scripture and I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for all of us because I think there's so much material in the word of God about this 
because it's such a likely possibility that we all should take our own pulse, that we all should do some self-examination um, lest we miss the most important message the Spirit might have for us. So, Luke chapter 8, beginning at verse 4. Actually, before I do that, I'm going to read um, another passage for you out of Matthew, kind of a run-up to our Luke passage. This is Jesus, <clears throat> Matthew 7, beginning at verse 21. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, We'd read that and say, yeah, we know that's the case. We know that not everybody's saved. But then he goes on to explain it in a, a salvation in a different way than we might be familiar with. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. Now, we insist here um, on the biblical message that none of us are saved by what we do. There's no one who's going to enter into the kingdom of heaven who earned that entrance who did enough of this and didn't do enough of this rather Jesus point is the authenticity of our faith in Jesus Christ is going to be exposed going to be revealed by doing the will of the father not perfectly but this is our inclination and this is our evidence he goes on to say, On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We performed many miracles in your name. But Jesus says, I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. So again, he's insisting uh, the, the measurement of the truth of our faith is not that we exercise spiritual gifts it is that we obey father and do his will all right luke chapter 8 beginning of verse 4 on one day jesus told a story in the form of a parable to a large crowd that had gathered from many towns to hear him a farmer went out to plant his seed and as he scattered it across his field some seed fell on a footpath where it was stepped on and the birds ate it other seed fell among rocks. It began to grow, but the plant soon wilted and died for lack of moisture. Other seed fell among thorns that grew up with it and choked out the tender plants and produced a crop that was a hundred times as much as had been planted. When Jesus said this, he called out, anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. Now, take note of that line. It's going to link us to next week's message in the following verses. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He replied, you are permitted to understand the secrets of the kingdom of God, but I use parables to teach the others so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. This is from um, Isaiah 6, 9. When they look, they won't really see. When they hear, they won't understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is God's word. Now, let me just stop here and say, uh, God's word, okay, this, this is all God's word, so we might wonder what of God's word is he referring to? Is he simply talking about uh, some commands, do this, don't do that? Is he talking about understanding the patriarchs or something? The next verse reveals what he's saying. The seeds that fall on the footpath represent those who hear the message 
only to have the devil come and take it away from their hearts and prevent them from believing and being saved. And we know from Scripture, the gospel is what saves. Jesus Christ died and rose again to save sinners like me. So he's speaking specifically about the message of the gospel when he says, uh, talks about God's word. Verse 13. The seeds on the rocky soil represent those who hear the message and receive it with joy. But since they don't have deep roots, they believe for a while, then they fall away when they face temptation. The seeds that fell among the thorns represent those who hear the message, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the cares and riches and pleasures of this life. And so they never grow into maturity. And the seeds that fell on the good soil represent honest, good-hearted people who hear God's word, cling to it, and patiently produce a huge harvest. Father, as we talk about this story, uh, guard us against simply hearing it as a curious narrative by a prophet from ancient times. Let us hear it as an evaluation tool for our own lives and for the lives of those we love. And if we are prone to deceive ourselves, this morning strip away that tendency in a way that we might see, not through blinded eyes, but through seeing clear eyes the true nature of our condition my prayer and my hope is that there's not one person here this morning who has a false faith but I've been in the church long enough and I've lived long enough to suspect that that's probably not the case and I think of my own story baptized profession of faith for 14 long years before truly coming to the foot of the cross and my I pray that no one's journey here would need to be so long and even as we think about um, ourselves and make conclusions confident we know Christ We, we, we are, I think many of us are prone to want to say only nice things and good things to other people. And I think about, um, I, I think about some people even in my own extended family that would say they're believers and yet nothing reinforces that hope. And I know how timid I am. And so would you help people like me to love other people enough to be able to say some things that it would least prompt people to do some soul searching. I think of that verse in Ezekiel where the the responsibility of the watchman is to warn that the enemy is coming and that if he does and people don't 
take cover. It's on their own heads. But if he doesn't warn that the enemy's coming, then their blood, when they're killed by the enemy, is on the watchman's head. And may we take that charge seriously as well. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, three kinds of, four kinds of soils here. We're going to break it down into three because there's really um, three essential categories. First category, uh, this is, we talk, call this often the parable of the sower, but the emphasis is not on the sower. The emphasis is the kind of soil that the seed is dropping into. Now, picture in your mind a, a field not quite like our typical fields here in Lancaster County. If you're a farmer in Lancaster County, you have a, you have a rectangle or a, a square or some plot of ground that is um, all alike. It's fertilized alike. You've removed all the rocks from it. Um, it's, it's, it's good soil in general. That's not the case with an ancient field in Jesus' day. It was not uncommon to have a footpath along the edge of a field uh, roads were not as prevalent as they are now, and people typically walked a, across other people's properties to get from one place to another. And so there would be a, a, a little path along the edge. And, of course, you know a path that gets, if you have enough people walking on it, that gets worked down over time. And you also have some spots in the field where there's thorns. You have spots where there's rock as well as uh, good soil. But all of this, all these different kinds of soils could have been in a field uh, like Jesus is talking about. So he's talking first about the footpath. Now he says the seed is the word of God that's being uh, dropped on the different kinds of soil and a Palestinian planter would have had a bag uh, around his shoulder and he's dipping into and he's casting the seed out and um, it's, it's going around. It's not as precise as your planters would be today. So some of the seed falls on the footpath and Jesus describes that as a, a place where it's so packed down, the soil doesn't really have time to root itself. The birds come and eat, uh, uh, the seeds don't have time to root itself. The birds come and eat the seed up. And when Jesus explains this part of the parable to his disciples, he says that's Satan snatching the word of God, snatching the gospel off of the soil of the heart before it can d do its good work in the heart. Now this is a picture of a hardened heart. This is different from the other three kinds of soil. This is a person that really, they hear the gospel, they don't, they don't want anything to do with that. They're, they're not interested, they're not receptive, they're not, uh, they're not vulnerable to the work of uh, the Spirit in their lives. And so they, they just write it off, done. I, I want you to see something in this soil that is, apparent in other, uh, is not apparent in the other soils. Now, Satan is always involved when there's a null and void effect of the gospel. But here it seems like Satan is, is um, in harmony with the heart of the hearer. In other words, it's not just that Satan sneaks in and the person is receptive to the gospel and he snatches the seed away and they're like, whoa, whoa, bring it back. No, no, there's a hardness here represented by this packed soil on the footpath. These are people who are not interested in the gospel. Now we get to uh, later on, and we're going to see two kinds of people who are interested in the gospel, but we should say they pretend to be interested in the gospel. Maybe that's not quite accurate, that, that they have a, a marginal interest in the gospel might be more accurate. 
a marginal interest in the gospel. You have first the, the rocky soil. Now, this would have been uh, a place in the field where the soil was shallow. It might have been two, three inches deep. Beneath that is a limestone outcropping. And so the seed hits that soil, and it begins to sprout. Seed goes down to the soil. Um, there, uh, a small root begins to form, and the, uh, the plant grows up. But once that root starts to dry, tries to drive deeper and to get more nourishment, it's hot out here, and you have to go deeper to get water. It can't get there because the rock interferes with it. And Jesus describes this kind of person as someone who initially receives the word with joy. Uh, Jesus died and, and rose again to save me from my sins. That's awesome. But then when temptation comes along and and depending on the version you have, it might say testing there, it might say temptation. The Greek word is the same for both words. And sometimes you can tell when one is tempting and one is testing, but I think it's appropriate to see both here. In other words, the person says, yep, I want to receive Christ, and they start to grow, but then tempting, temptation comes along, and, and some old buddies for, that they used to hang out with come and say, come do the things with us again that we used to do. Say, oh, okay. Or testing, where people say, hey, I heard that you've become a Jesus freak. Is that true? Oh, I, I, I don't know if that's really true. And they get bumped off of this declaration, yes, Jesus is, is my Lord and Savior, and, and whether it's people who are trying to lure them back into sinful ways or people who are trying to uh, kind of undermine their, uh, their embrace of the good news, either way, they just kind of drift off. And when it comes time to count them, they're nowhere around to be counted. Now, the third kind of soil is of similar constituency. The difference is, it's not that they have rocks underneath the surface of the soil, but there's a lot of thorns that are growing in this area. And so the soil might be deep, but the thorns crowd out the effect of the seed. Again, seed hits the soil, a plant starts to come up, it's growing, but the thorns are more aggressive, they're, they're more powerful, and they just crowd out the plant so that it dies. Now, you know that is true with your own flower beds, your garden. If you do not weed, you lose. I don't care whether it's spinach or tomatoes or whatever. You need to keep weeding if you expect to get a crop. Why? Because the weeds are more powerful than the crop. Why is that, by the way? Why is it that weeds are more uh, effective? You don't have to water them. You don't have to fertilize them. They just grow. Genesis 3 is the answer to that, by the way. And so over time, now Jesus says what's the th what the thorns represent in the soil are the cares of this life, riches, um, stuff. In other words, it's, it's, it's life and the aspirations that many of us have in life, most of us have in life. I, I, I want to accumulate my wealth. I want to I be able to uh, live more comfortably. Uh, oh, now I have problems going on, and that's kind of... These are distractions. That's what Jesus is saying. Th these people, again, receive the gospel. Yeah, that sounds like a great deal. They make the profession of faith. Maybe they get baptized like I was. But soon they're... Might keep coming to church, but really there's no part of their life that 
really represents, other than the fact they're nice people, that represents that they're following Jesus. Again, seemed, there's a pretense there. Maybe they, didn't, they weren't uh, initially pretending or wanting to convey that they weren't interested in this gospel, but over time, whether it's the rocky soil or the thorny soil, there are other things that take precedence in their life. And Jesus is someone that they pay lip service to. They go to church now and then, and they give, uh, make, put their money in the offering maybe regularly. But really, if you would look at their lives from Monday through Saturday, there's nothing in it that would scream, I love Jesus. So what about you? Is there anything that prosecuting attorney could get on you Monday through Saturday that could convict you of being a follower for Jesus, of Jesus? Sunday's a gimme. Sunday's a gimme. Come to church, do your spiritual thing, but really, truth be told, the rest of your life is yours. See, this kind of problem of false, false faith is not nearly so prevalent in a place like Pakistan, a place like China. Why is that? It's too expensive to put up the pretense. There's really not a lot of benefits if we pretend to follow Jesus. In fact, there's a lot of downsides to doing that and so if you're going to follow Jesus or if you're going to uh, if you're going to make a decision about some spiritual reality you better be sure that you're all in but in this country that's not the case is it in fact there are some real honest to goodness benefits to going to church, being part of a fellowship, like-minded people. You maybe have similar morals and you're horrified about how the morals are going in this country and because you, you don't like how that's going to affect you and your family and your kids and grandkids. You, but if pushed somebody asks you are you all in for jesus you'd have a hard time making a case and so would a prosecuting attorney and jesus says there's a fourth kind of soil and this is a kind that has a whole different response to the gospel than the first three. Verse 15. And the seeds that fell on the good soil represent honest, good-hearted people who hear God's word, cling to it, and patiently produce. Now listen, listen, listen. Patiently produce a huge harvest. Now, 
you look back at the other two times this parable is recorded, Mark 4, Matthew 13, and there's a difference in those two cases from here. Jesus simply talks about a huge harvest. In those two times he, he taught this parable, he talked about people who harvest 30, 60, and 100 times what was originally planted. That tells me that when Jesus is talking about a harvest, he's not talking about super saints, whether they're the preachers or evangelists or whatever your mind is, uh, in your mind is a super saint. Some people are going to have small amounts of harvest, so that, that, that creates room for the person who's serving Jesus Christ. Their fruit is, is not over the top, but there's fruit there. 60 times what was planted, 100 times what was planted. I use this illustration frequently. A cherry tree might be poorly maintained or well-maintained. It might have a bumper crop of cherries or it might have a small crop of cherries. But in both cases, there are cherries on the tree. There's fruit. And so Jesus is speaking about fruit, period. Your crop might be big, it might be small, it might, might be middle-sized, but every true responder to the gospel of Jesus Christ bears fruit in his name on planet Earth. Do you? Do I? So what, what does that look like? I want us to look at a couple of other scriptures uh, to try to answer that question. Um, I'm going to start at Luke 6. This is not really answering the question, but again, laying more of the foundation. Luke 6, verse 44. This is a passage we had looked at earlier in the year. A tree is identified by its fruit. And Jesus is talking here about his followers. A tree is identified by its fruit. Figs are never gathered from thorn bushes, and grapes are not picked from bramble bushes. All right, let's go to Philippians chapter 1. What's this fruit look like? If I'm to make an evaluation either about myself or about someone I care about, how do I do that? What's the fruit that I ought to be looking for? Philippians chapter 1, verse 11. And by the way, if you want to do an interesting study on this, just go to Bible Gateway or pull out, if you have a concordance on your shelf, just pull it out and look up the word fruit. See, depending on your translation, a couple hundred times this word is used in Scripture. And sometimes it's speaking about literal fruit, but many, many times uh, the Bible speaks about fruit as the, the, word of, uh, or, or the result of work of God in people's lives. Uh, much more metaphorical sense. Verse 11, Philippians 1, may you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation. That's precisely what Jesus is talking about in this parable. The righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. The righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. So start there. If you're going to take your spiritual pulse, if I'm to take my spiritual pulse, start there. Is there righteous character being produced in my life? Now, again, I don't think he's asking perfect character. None of us would need the gospel if 
This was speaking about perfect character. But, but when people look at you, when, when you look at you, when I look at me, do we say that there's, there's evidence there to convict me with? Righteous character, the result of salvation. We could go to Galatians chapter 5, which talks about the fruit of the Spirit, right? Remember that? Uh, verses 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit, in other words, what the Spirit is producing when he comes to live in my life in response to salvation, he's producing love, joy, peace, and on and on. If you were here at VBS this week, we sang about this a bunch of times. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, uh, uh, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So if you are a mean, miserable person before the gospel and three months in or three years into your supposed faith, you're still a mean, miserable person. It's, nobody can stand to be around. That should alarm you. Why? Because the spirit who supposedly moved into you when you were born again doesn't seem to be producing at least any measure greater of love than you had before. We've been talking these last four weeks about joy. I, you know, if, if you are a person that sees uh, the glass always half empty and you can only see the bad things that are happening in your life and not the good things, three, week, or three months into, into your salvation, three years into your salvation, is that, has that changed at all? Or you, or you still think, man, life stinks. Love, joy, peace. Are you a person that's always fomenting tension with other people? You, 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 you can, can't forgive people. You're always pointing out their mistakes. And there's no peace in your life. Or maybe you're just full of anxieties. No peace. Three years into your salvation, you say, well, Keith, I, you know, this used to just always haunt me and um, this would be a problem in my life and I'm worried and worried about this and I, I've seen growth in this area but I still have anxieties in this area but that's the point there's growth there's fruit this side of glory we're not going to make it home completely like we ought to but there's growth evidence that's fruit fruit that God is doing work in your life See, the reason that we should expect fruit if there's real faith is that faith is ultimately a supernatural work of God. It's a supernatural work of God. When Nicodemus came to see Jesus in John chapter 3 and he, and, and he wants to know the way, eternal life, Jesus begins to tell him about being born again. And the guy's like, what? Born again. And he explains to him that God comes and does work in people's lives. We don't know where he's come from. We don't know where he's going, but we know he's at work. And that's why he says you should be born again rather than you should give birth to yourself again. It's a passive work by God. Now, we respond to the gospel, but it's God who comes in and does this work. And so when God works, there's always a result. When you and I do things, eh, not so much. Is there fruit? On the one hand, this righteous character. And by the way, from character comes actions. You do who you are. You do who you are. Titus chapter 1, verse 16. Let me uh, go here before we move on to the 
discipleship piece. Titus 1, verse 16. Paul writes to his protege about certain people who claim they know God, but they deny him by the way they live. They claim to know God, but they deny him by the way they live. So, first and foremost, fruit of someone who's truly born again is a righteous character. Second, there is this discipleship piece. In other words, you and I know people who are really, really good people who don't love Christ, don't know Christ. In other words, there is a piece of our lives as followers of Jesus Christ that's not just about character. It's about investment in the cause of Christ in this world. Uh, Again, Philippians chapter 1, now verse 22. uh, This interesting passage where Paul is trying to decide. He, He thinks that maybe his life is coming to an end. And now he's wrestling with, what do I want? Do I want my life to come to to an end, which go to be with Christ, and that would be awesome? Or do I want to stay here longer so that I can build into your life, invest in your life, advance the cause of Christ in your life? And he concludes, if I stay here, if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better, but in the end he decides he needs to stay here, and that probably God's going to let him stay here so that he can do more work in other people's lives. Is, is what you're invested in, is what I'm invested in uh, Monday through Saturday, not just in furthering my career, not just in accumulating my wealth, not just in repairing all the stuff around home, not just enjoying the social um, opportunities that I have with family and friends, but in advancing the kingdom of Christ. Fruitful work for Jesus Christ. What does that look like? You and I both know people that don't know Jesus Christ. Is that concern about them in our minds when we're talking to them? Are, are, do we know people uh, either in our circles outside of church or in church that we are interested in building into their lives and helping them grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ? We have some wonderful uh, men here at Keystone who are working with other men and the Men of Iron program and helping mentor them. Uh, all of us are, are either more mature than someone or less mature than someone in our faith. And so all of us should be building in some way, whether it's, it's a, a, you know, kind of an official structure like Men of Iron or just a very um, um, casual relationship we have where we're helping them grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ as well as having someone who's building into our lives helping us grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. By the way, you never arrive. You never arrive till we get home to glory. Always benefit from others speaking into our lives. So the fruit of righteous character, but also this fruit of building into other people's lives, discipling, discipling other people, whether it's in a, a you know, kind of a formal relationship or an informal relationship. Um, I need to cover a couple verses here before we stop. That we read here back in Luke chapter 8, verses 9 and 10. My guess is when we read through these, uh, some of you went, huh? And wonder, what's this mean? 
Jesus tells the parable. And by the way, a parable is different than an allegory. A parable has one main point. It's a story Jesus gives, makes one main point. An allegory has all kinds of points. So, that, you know, if it's a story about a, 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 a shepherd and a donkey, you know, the donkey's hooves have some meaning and the shepherd's staff has a meaning and all that. That's not the case with a parable. It has one main meaning. Jesus told the parable, and then the disciples want to know why in the world he talks to these people in parables. And he answers them that he's hiding things from these people. You say, wait a minute. I thought a parable is like a sermon illustration. It's designed to clear things up. Jesus makes it sound like that's not the case here that there's some sort of masking that's going on. Now, the quotation where he says, um, he says, well, let me start back at verse 10. You are permitted, speaking to the disciples, to understand the secrets of the kingdom of God, but I use parables to teach the others so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. When they look, they won't really see. When they hear, they won't understand. Now, in Isaiah chapter 6, God is speaking future judgment on the people of Judah because they have hard hearts. And this particular chapter in Luke begins a whole new season of Jesus' ministry where he starts speaking in parables with great regularity. And the problem that, ha- that was occurring was Jesus, I mean, Jesus' reputation had gone through the roof by this time. And there were people getting on his bandwagon left and right that had not considered the cost. They were superficial followers. I mean, you know the stories as you read through the gospel. Jesus has these massive crowds of thousands and thousands of people. But as he's getting closer and closer to Jerusalem and the cross, those crowds are dwindling. People are leaving left and right. The teaching is getting more intense and requiring more. And they're like, I'm out. And what Jesus is doing at this point in his ministry, it's time for him to start sifting. It's time for him to find out who's in and who's not. Who will follow him to the cross? And who will say, ah, I'm, I, as long as you give me free food, and as long as you heal me, and as long as you care, cast out my uncle's demons, I, I'm good. But boy, you get to talking about eating your body and drinking your blood, ick. Now, make no mistake about it. There is a picture here that is going to make some of you uncomfortable. God's elective grace. However, it is in concert with human hard hearts. When God was calling Moses to lead Israel out of Egypt, this is what he told him, Exodus chapter 7, verse 3. I will make Pharaoh's heart stubborn so I can multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Now you read the subsequent chapters there in Exodus and you're going to see this intriguing interplay. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardens his own heart. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardens his own heart. But at the end of the day, God used Pharaoh's hard heart to magnify his own glory. And he punished the Egyptians severely. 
Now, let me say this to all of us. If we have a hard heart, and I don't want us just to think about that early soil, but the thorny soil and the rocky soil ultimately represent a hard heart as well. That God will ultimately be glorified in the hardness of every human heart on earth. But his desire, and this is where I rest my hope, his desire is 2 Peter 3, verse 9. It is not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. If that is God's will, part of the fruit that God desires to see out of you and I is that we are reaching out for those whom he does not desire to be lost but to be delivered. I'm going to close reading a passage out of 2 Timothy. Uh, Chad, if you have that, throw that up on the screen. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Beginning at verse um, 6. There are the kind who work their way into people's homes and win the confidence of vulnerable women who are burdened with the guilt of sin and controlled by various desires. He's talking about women here for a particular purpose. Don't get hung up on that. He could be saying it about men as well. Such women are forever following new teachings, but they are never able to understand the truth. These teachers oppose the truth just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. They have depraved minds and a, read it with me, counterfeit faith. What's it say? A counterfeit faith. But they won't get away with this for long. Someday, everyone will recognize what fools they are, just as with Janus and Jambres. God desires that all would come to repentance and all would come to faith. And he's not talking about a pretend faith. He's not talking about a come-to-church-occasionally faith. Or even I come to church all the time, but don't have real faith. You know, people say, uh, you know, coming to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than, you know, standing in the garage makes you an automobile. And that's true. My closing admonition for all of us would be to ask ourselves are we bearing fruit? Not perfect fruit. There's no tree in an orchard that bears perfect fruit. But all the fruit trees have fruit on them. All the fruit trees have some fruit on them. Father, thank you for the gospel that we've been given, the good seed. Please don't 